0: Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about Frank Lampard and the pundit manager, Quid Pro Quo. In recent years, you've had a, a fundamental change in how managers are appointed yeah, you, it's so easy to go back to the sort of fifties, sixties, and seventies when you would have you know managers take over clubs in Division Two, you know going nowhere, and they would build a club up almost by their sort of bare hands. You know, Dom Revy, Bill Nicholson, you have all of these great sort of dominant managers. And you have managers who are, who are assistants, who go up from the youth system, or they've had some success at a smaller club and then go to a big club. And really, the 2000s and the, the sort of rise of the Premier League and the amount of money and stratification that's come out of that has really cut off so many of those angles. In other words, managing a, if you take a club from you know, League 2, to the championship. Yeah, that's been done. Yoville have done it. They even went out you know, even from the conference to Division One, Yeah, you know, the championship. But that's no the skills and talent that you need to manage that will just be completely different from a, you know, a 15th place Premier League team. You know, you're managing people who are earning five to ten grand a week and then suddenly you have internationals on 40, 50, 60 grand a week it you know where you go from crowds of 10,000 people where it's a small town where you only have a handful of you know sort of re- local radio stations local newspapers to suddenly being you know worldwide news if you're playing man city or if you're playing man united or liverpool and so suddenly you've had situations where clubs have you know really gone for you know expensive foreign managers and now you've suddenly over the last few years had sort of pundit managers you know, people who have been pundits your know, ex-pros who have then made the jump into you know, professional ranks you know you've had you know club legends you know relatively young suddenly becoming manager your classic example was you know andrea Pirlo at juventus in his autobiography he said i would never become a coach it's not something i feel i have the skills for or the interest you know he d- decides to really dip his toe in with the Managing the under twenty three team, and within a week, he's now suddenly the Juventus manager. It Lacks even some of the you know, the actual full qualifications, and so in some it asks sort of several wider questions. You know, to what extent is managerial success down to your narrative? I mean, how much control does a manager have over their career and the way how that sort of spun? Because you can you have sometimes you have the situation where the manager is a salesman where you know by personality, a sort of classic Jose situation. you know Jose was successful at Porto, but because of his personality, it almost sort of made fantastic success iridescent. You couldn't miss it. And I think you have to start off with the the limited amount of jobs. I mean generally speaking, fifty percent sort of, of managers never get another job. You have one job, it doesn't go very well. And that's it. There's so much, so much competition for jobs and there's so few of them. So the problem is, is that as a result, you you have a limited amount of choice. Yes, a lot of the times you really are taking on a hopeless cause or a poison chalice, but you don't really have much of a choice. It's either this or you don't manage at all. So, yes, you might know that that team is destined for relegation. They might be old. They might be, you know too young they might you know you might not have any defenders or you might have sold, you know you sold three or four of your best players the day before the transfer window closes you now you might go your team might be going through financial problems but that's your or you know the owner might be you know trigger happy and will sack you after six games even if you you know you couldn't have done anything more than what you have done and so really it comes down to you know really a case in a lot of more recent years of how much capital, political capital, how much narrative you can bring. In other words, if you are a big name, that often goes a lot further than if you have the qualifications. And I think look, doing the sort of research for this podcast, the benefits of celebrity, the fact that Lampard, Gerard, the Neville brothers were all on television. They were all being seen by a huge audience of people, you know, domestically, internationally. And so, but if you then compare it with, and there's been, there's obviously unconscious racism, or even in some cases, conscious racism that is basically holding black, holding back, you know, minority managers. But there's also a sense of, you know, if you look at Son Campbell and Ashley Colt, they were, you know, when their careers ended, you know, Sol Campbell for a few years was, you know, into for property development and wasn't really a fixture. He, you know, he's only recently that you've seen him on sort of Sky Sports at the back end of last season. And the same thing with Ashley Cole. He moved to America. He spent a, you know that few months with Roma, and he was really out of sight and out of mind. Whereby your Geralds your Lampard, your Neville brothers, you couldn't really get away from them, and so there is that sense that. You know, there are there are barriers and there is some you know institutional racism, but there's also a sense that you know how decisions are made, and that an element of fame. And you could also then say that you know the fact that it's only again in the last few sort of couple of seasons that you're starting to see more women being you know, used as pundits, you know more minority pundits, and so really. <sighs> Is there a difference between a celebrity manager and a club legend manager? I suppose the idea is is that your club legend manager, especially if they've only just recently retired, the idea is is I suppose that they have an understanding of the club, you know, an intrinsic understanding that an outsider isn't going to have, and that the fans will get them, and that they, you know, that there's some form of sort of synergy, some sort of advantage that you get. At the beginning. Whereby with Celebrity Manager. It is far more about just the the boost. You know, the you know, surge in ticket sales interest. I often think back to um, this truism. That the idea that really. Once you have a, a sporting result. That the, that the result was morally right. The idea is is that let's say you have a top of the table team at home to a team in the relegation zone the team that you know ends in the relegation zone parks the bus defends the flag goalkeeper makes seven or eight great chances the you know great team home team striker misses a couple of one-on-ones puts it wide and then the 89th minute there's a corner and the, the massive you know slab head center half buries a header into the top corner the idea is is that you could almost argue that it was really a battling performance that it wasn't luck that you know if you replayed that game 99 more times you know 90 93% of the time the home side would you know rack up a cricket score and that i think comes down to how we really perceive management you know it's really a sort of chicken in the egg argument you know does managerial success you know write its own narrative or do you have the narrative to begin with in other words if you are the caretaker boss and you go on a great runner for me a little bit like Hansi Flick where it wasn't necessarily preordained that he was going to be the manager he was just there to get them through to the winter break they'd see if it was a situation where they could get a better manager or a more high profile one and then they sort of let it to the end of you know they say oh we'll make the decision at the end of the season give ourselves some more time and by that by yes mid you know by the time of when the lockdown and German football restarted you know, it was clear that he was the best person for the job. Goes and wins the league. The Champions League. And so. I guess it really comes down to. Are we. As fans really. Accurate. And able to understand. What is a good manager. Because it, it, it's often seen as this kind of. Path fail grade management. You know, It's black or white. You know it's when really it's far more, the reality is far more shades of grey. You know, it should be graded on a curve. In other words, if you start as a manager with an injury crisis, often people will then say, oh, well, that means you're not training well enough. Or that there's some inadequacy. Or there's a problem with your medical stuff. It can never be just that actually you've had horrendously bad bad luck. That there was really relatively little that you could have done about it. And that so much of, you know, management is really down to circumstances and infrastructure. In other words, Chelsea have got rid of lots of managers, but generally speaking, they've had, you know, a period of sustained success. You know, different types of managers have won. You know, Antonio Conte has won. You know, Jose has won at Chelsea. But then at the same time, you've had Carlo Ancelotti has one. You know, there, there are similarities and there are dissimilarities realistically if you have the most money the biggest and best squad you're likely to have success in the end you know the the premier league table broadly speaking comes down to you know the teams that would have the highest budget or near the top and the teams with the smaller budgets are, are near the bottom you know that's the one you know sort of you know factor that really across sort of the top level european you know football leagues is pretty much the same the biggest teams in Spain are Real Madrid, Barcelona, and generally speaking, over the last 10, 15 years, they've been at the top. Same thing with Juventus, same thing with you know, PSG. You know, PSG have had several different managers. All di- you know, you could say the differences between Laurent Blanc and Thomas Tuchel, completely different characters, but they have both won the, the French League. And so in many ways in, in the modern game, you have a situation where you know the manager is the easiest thing to change you know the board isn't going to sack itself you know changing a premier league squad is difficult you can't do it in one transfer window you know especially if they've got you know if you're a manager on a one year contract and your players on a four year contract you're the vulnerable one because you have the one year contract they're going to be there realistically speaking after you leave you know sacking the manager It mollifies the fans and it provides content for the media. You know, as much as you always have columnists say ah oh, isn't it terrible that we're talking about the managerial sack race that you know no one has any time to do the job at the same time those media companies are still the ones that will basically at the top mast of the thing say you know Lampard is in trouble you know if if Ole loses four or five in a row man united there will be talk of who can come in to replace him you know does he have to the end of the season it is that kind of it it does feed into feed in on in and of itself you know, we all know that really yeah, you know, we've done statistical evidence you know studies we know that the new manager bounce is generally speaking a myth you know if you're going to you know a lot of the time you know i often find with with managerial sackings is that You'll get to a situation where, let's say, you lose your star player, you sell him in the summer for 60, 70, 80 million pounds. You then buy, you know, like Spurs did with Bale, and you're buying four or five new players, and you're realistically trying to replace one player, you know, one you know, five star player, with, let's say, two four stars and two three stars, and you're just trying to make the overall team better. But obviously, if you, you try and add four or five new players to a settled starting 11, Something has to give. Either your new players, you know, will basically push out some of the older, you know, some of the existing squad players, or you'll get to a situation where you'll have three or four of your new signings won't be playing very much. And then there's a whole pressure comes out of that one. And look, we spent 30 million pounds on this guy and he's not even, you know, getting off the bench when we're playing in the FA Cup or he's only scored two goals, you know, is he a flop? Is he going to be, you know, resold back to what, from where he came from? And it's a bit like with Everton, when they had a situation where, realistically, they, they spent a load of money on players, but they end up with sort of four number 10s. And there was just no way, the end you might have to push Gilfie Sigurdsson out wide, or you had, you know, Bernard playing as a sort of false nine. And really, if you, you know, there was no way somebody had to fail. And you know, it unbalanced the squad. So the money that they spent, you know, on their attacking, they didn't really have the money for the striker, or they didn't have money to for squad players. And it really was just a bit of a mess. And while all the players they had signed were, you know, were theoretically good, there hadn't been much thought to how it works, you know, as a squad. I mean, when you're talking about managers, I suppose one of your classic examples was Sunderland uh, a few years ago. And they had a kind of succession of managers. You know, you had Martin O'Neill in for a few years. Then you had De Canio, Gus Poyet, Dick Advocaat, Sam Allardyce, David Moyes. And all of them, in, in their own way, were able to keep Sunderland in the Premier League. But they were never able to make any kind of long-term reforms. So, in other words, they would, you'd get the job sort of October, November, January. You'd try and bring in some new players and then you would just patch it up try and get some results try and get a team going and tr- literally try and get to 40 points by mid may and just survive and the problem would is is that they were never long term signings they were short term you hadn't really got rid of some of the dead wood but you had done just enough to finish 17th and then the problem is, is that you wouldn't really have time to really implement any new tactics. You would some of those loan players would go back, and this the whole cycle would start again. You'd start the season badly, you'd then get sacked. New manager comes in, same thing. It just sort of it was a horrendously sort of vicious cycle, and in the end, it eroded the culture. You had so much dead weight, so much money, so little planning that it really. Paved the way to the road to League One. So it wasn't just a case that they stayed, that they finally went down, but okay, you're back in the Championship, you're still only ever 46 games away from getting back into the Premier League. But not only did they not do particularly well in the Championship, they got relegated, and that's all in the Sunderland Till I Die documentaries. And Suddenly, they're now in League One, and you're now two steps away. And they spent two or three seasons now in League One. And it it hasn't, you know, there's so much potential for them to get back into the Premier League, but it is, you know, there's so much work to be done there. They've gone through several owners, different managers. And so, really, what it does sort of argue of the efficacy of these managers was it that these managers that, you know, kept them up? Was it that they were, you know, firefighters in the sort of Sam Allardyce mould, or was it in some way because of the the money that they were given in January, the fact that there was always the enough money in the kitty to keep, you know, to bring in these players who would just about keep them up for the next season, but never anything more than that. So was it the money that basically allowed the managers to have that success? So really, with Sunderland, it was the honour. Ellis Short was profligate. And incompetent he spent a load of money but spent the money badly and so really by the end of the last 3 or 4 years of Sunderland's run in the Premier League they were spending money to keep a roof over their heads with the Premier League money but each time they were getting more and more into debt and the problems around the club you know really it the house was sinking the, the foundations were being eaten away but had Sunderland and Ellis short in a way Turned management into sort of a crude political tool rather than a craft in other words it didn't really matter who was in charge as long as there was enough money to buy some new players to keep you going did it really matter who was in charge there was always somebody there who'd have the skill who'd be available to be what who'd want to be a Premier League manager and because you're getting to a point now in different sports let's take you know cricket and baseball. Where you, you, you know, because of the amount of cricket, international cricket, and tours, you're going all around the world, you're getting to a point where often coaches are missing tours. So, okay, let's say England are going off to the West Indies for a couple of test matches, a few one day internationals. The, the coach will stay at home, and effectively, the assistant and a couple of other, you know, people will be drafted in to basically cover for the manager while he's just basically spending some time with his family because it's a sort of three hundred and sixty-five-day you know job. But then if you're not there all of the time, does that therefore suggest in some way, shape or form that really you're not actually doing a tremendous amount? There was always this talk when Trevor Bayliss was England manager that he was sort of sit there and say, Well I don't do a tremendous amount. I pick the play you know, the players are picked by the selectors. And I tell them to go out and, you know, enjoy themselves and show off their talent. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, I'm not going to be telling them. You know, I'm not going to be ordering them what to do. And it was always this kind of, well, what are you being paid for to do then? If you're just telling the players to go out and express themselves, anyone could do that. You know, you know, make sure that the you know, the 11 people who are playing know they're playing and really, to say, well, you know, hopefully we'll score some runs, and we'll do it, you know, in a proactive manner. And in the end, England started to struggle. They weren't scoring many runs, and they were, and it just felt like the, the the Test team was struggling. And then, if you sort of compare it with baseball, with managers becoming far more almost ceremonial, they're not urgent or relevant. It's the front office that basically tells them what to do. They are there just basically, to look managerial. So, you know, so that there's someone that you can shout at on talk radio if you're not doing very well. Their sort of levers, their ability to actually make decisions is fairly low. They're told what strategies to pick. You know, Here's all the data, this is what we want you to this is what players we want you to play, and this is how we want to really structure the team. And you just basically have to almost be a facilitator, a HR guy on site that keeps everything sort of ticking over. And is that really, you know, football's future? Is it going to be a situation where, you know, your directors of football, your staff that come up with all of the the statistics uh, and all of the data are going to end up having more power over, you know, tactics. And so, in effect, then suddenly the manager just becomes more of a PR person, someone that's going to, you know inspire the fan so it becomes PR over tactics which really would then explain why having a celebrity manager would be more beneficial to necessarily then actually having someone who is an old school sort of tactical manager someone who's very sort of circumspect who isn't you know going to look great in an Armani suit but will have will be the man with a plan so that does really ask a sort of key question of what is more powerful you know a narrative or a managerial philosophy you know in some ways when i use the term pundit managers it's almost like sort of how plato used the term philosopher kings in some ways the what the rise of the pundit manager comes down from their their power is in their relatability and their projectability in other words you know you see them on television You know, you have to, you know, and with television, you you know, there's makeup. You know, the the suits are tailored perfectly. You know, there's a script. There's a runtime. You know, everything is well organized. You you know, there's a teleprompter. So really, if you take, you know, Monday Night Football, you know, Gary Neville's command of tactics. And, you know, that was really allied with his, you know, glory laden career. And the thing is, he was a great right back a sort of serviceable centre-half if you needed one. You know, the famous Sir Alex Ferguson statement that he was just two inches too small to be a world-class, you know, centre-half. So that sense that he was a player who wasn't physically gifted, but he was sort of relied on smarts and, you know, hard work and, you know, basically having a good understanding of the position. And so, but that command was really illusory. You know, it, it's essentially retrospectively diagnosing faults. Ah, they didn't defend this corner. They've always, you know, it's the, you know, the fame, the, your archetypal Monday night football halftime thing is when a team that doesn't mark corners well, who does zonal, and you say, look, on paper it works, but look, there's, you know, space here, here and here. They haven't tracked the runner from there to there. And that's why they've conceded five set, piece, you know, five set pieces goals in the last month. You know, in effect, the, the pundit is really a coroner, not a diagnostician. You know, a manager is someone who has to diagnose things beforehand and when they're happening. And that has to really have an, a plan for how to get, you know, if you take over a club that's in the relegation zone, you're effectively a doctor. You have to nurse this you know outfit back to health. You have to make the right decisions and make the right, you know, and have the right plan to you know keep this person alive and to get them back to health whereby your pundit will sit there you know in the mortuary and say well this went wrong this went wrong this was where this was what should have been done to have kept them alive and what you have you know if you take Probably one of the more famous examples of, sort of Gary Neville's punditry. It's when he made a comment about um, David, it was when he first, you know, one of his first seasons as a mainline pundit, and he was considered. you know, Everyone really enjoyed it. It was kind of a breath of breath of fresh air, and he it was it was halftime, and I it might have been Fulham versus Chelsea, but David Luiz had a bit of a nightmare first half, and he basically said that. I can't remember the exact quote, but basically said it was almost as if he was basically like a character in a PlayStation, you know, FIFA, that he was just, you know, going round and round without any, you know, real sort of tactical sense and was a bit of a car crash. And Davin Louise was the perfect target. You know, he's got the hair, you know, he was foreign, played for a big side, you know, different from your archetypal British centre half. And at its heart, it was really a populist move. It was an echo of social media that he legitimized. Yeah, you know, that's the sort of comment that people would make on Twitter or in a WhatsApp group or when they're texting their friends while who while watching the game in the bar. You just say, "Oh my God, he is an absolute car crash of a defender." And he legitimized it because really it was it was cutting. It was funny. It was pithy, and it was a. Snap judgment. But really, now that we look back on it, what is the truth of that statement? If you, you take the totality of David Luiz's career, you know he's gone to you know was captain of Brazil at a World Cup. Yes, they got hammered in the semi final, but they reached a World Cup semi final. You know he's won you know, huge amount. You know he's won the Europa League. He's won the Premier League. He's won the Champions League. You know cups. League Cups, you know, he's had, broadly speaking, you know, he's had great success out in Paris, had success for Arsenal, Chelsea. He's had a a, a successful career, and, and there's an element of longevity. He's still in the Premier League now. You know, he's still, you know, for a team that is, you know, trying to get into Europe, and it is still in Europe now. So, in reality, was that statement particularly accurate? not massively. You know there's an if you compare let's say you know Gary Neville's comments let's say with Alan Hansen's usual like schoolboy defending on match of the day in the late 90s early 2000s he was creating a media persona but it was based on his expertise. Yeah, there was an entertainment element to it. But he was well qualified to do so. You know, he was a great defender for Liverpool, and you know, he was a pundit. Yeah, you know, in his you know late nineties, early two thousands, he did, you know some, you know really interesting, thought provoking football documentaries for the BBC. Yeah, he did a few advertisements, but that was built off of his you know effectively good name. You know there wasn't a sense that he, you know had his own businesses or that. He was really trying to become a manager, or become anything more than just someone who was a pundit who gave their honest opinion. Whereby I've always felt that Neville was really working at cross purposes. You know, his success as a pundit accelerated his coaching career, and to a lesser extent, his business career. Even when he took the Valencia job, you know, he had a business relationship with the owner, Peter Lim. You know. Peter Lim is part owner of Salford, so are, you know, the class of 92. And they have, I believe, as far as I'm aware, they also have some, you know, project, building projects in Manchester that they both have a stake in. And that's what you end up with, with pundit managers. There's always an element of shortcuttery. There's, there's a lack of philosophy. There, in other words, there's you know Gary Neville deciding to leave the Monday Night Football gig to go work in Spain where he'd never played, where he didn't know the language, didn't really have a fantastic understanding of La Liga. How and how, why would you, while at the same time you were also being the assistant manager of England? And you also had all these sort of side businesses. And it's a bit you know, ridiculous. And it was unlikely to succeed. Whereby, if he'd would he done some coaching at United, or if he'd taken you know a job in the Championship, or in the Premier League as an assistant, there was just so many other options for him to basically build himself up into management. But it was as if he didn't have the time. It was either going to be now or never. I was going to have success now, and then I'd be a football manager, or I was going to dip my toe in, if that wasn't going to work, I've got my punditry, I've got my businesses, and case sera sera. It was almost a bit like, you know, where it was a classic example of a sort of PR high. I remember when David Beckham had this kind of weird, nebulous position of sort of managing something when, you know, Fabio Capello and the England team went to the World Cup in. South Africa. He was there in a suit. He was there. He was kind of I think some kind of liaison between the squad and Capello, and in the end, it just felt like he was there to kind of add a bit of star power to Capello, who had a kind of had this image. He didn't really speak English particularly well, so he was a bit grumpy and seemed a little bit out of touch to some of the players. And also, a way to sell suits. He was wearing the England official Burton suit, and it was a bit the same sort of principle and he didn't seem to do anything England didn't do particularly well much in the same way that you know Gary Neville having no coaching you know experience suddenly became the England assistant manager and it was almost as if they were using his credibility and you know his fame really as a way to offset the perception of Uncle Roy as being dull and a you know and and in fact, he was a little. He was aged, and it was some. You know, there was a sense that really he wasn't going to be England manager forever, and that somehow then Gary would then sort of you learn the ropes and then take over and take England on to the sort of the next step in you know, and take England to further glory. <sighs> and I think it, it's interesting, really, to to compare neville's career and the experience managerial career and experience of tim sherwood and again another sort of pundit manager and where was his success and popularity as a pundit delineated from and it was he was sort of a plain speaking truth teller he would be at times quite blunt and to the point and wouldn't mince his word. He, he always gave off... He had this sort of telev- television persona as being a traditionalist. And I think it very much appealed to fans who felt sort of threatened by the rise in uh, cosmopolitanism in the English game. You had more foreign players, more foreign managers. You, you generally had, you know, more exotic formations. And generally, you know, players started wearing pink boots and, you know, having... And being far more sort of, you know, just as much on the front page as they were the back pages, and you know, you didn't have centre halves that were great, you know, headers of the ball. You suddenly had centre halves who were ball players, and it was about possession more than chances. You know, you didn't have old school wingers, and and those people, I felt they almost felt a little bit, kind of, left out. Is that the managers now became these very obeying figures, and also in a way a little bit distant they weren't like ron atkinson or gordon strachan they were you know they was using interpreters or they were speaking kind of very vague kind of you know sort of very much sort of language that was hard to deconstruct they talked about philosophies or five-year plans and you know if they lost you know three nil they you never really got the same level of sort of fire and brimstone that you would have got from a Dave Bassett. And so what you have was, is that what were his skills that he, that he sort of utilised to kind of get to the stage where he was manager of Spurs, manager of Aston Villa. He was ambitious. I mean, he turned out he turned a part-time coaching gig—you know, took two or three times a week helping out Harry Redknapp at Spurs just after he'd retired from football—into a prominent academy role. He was the head of academy at Tottenham. You know, he had he was a good talent spotter. You know, and there there is an intelligence there. I'm not denying that. But really, his weaknesses were his, there was an element of duplicity. Now, he wasn't just content to be the head of the academy. It was really for him, I, to my mind, it, to him it was a stepping stone. That it was basically, he felt that he would be a great manager. And so, really, there was always sort of you know, rumours and talk that when, you know, that he was always positioning himself, that, you know, if you know AVB left the club or resigned or whatever, that He definitely put himself forward that he would be in the ears of the higher ups to try and get this job. And there was also an element of ego. There was always. You know, he he was very much someone who he like for example he overstated his role in Harry Kane's development. He gave this interview where he was saying that you know he was working with you know Harry Kane when he was sort of ten twelve you know kind of early teens and he was you know coaching him and helping him with his shooting. And then actually, when people did the maths of when Harry Kane was you know twelve and what Tim Sherwood was doing, Tim Sherwood wasn't working with that age group. So, you know it it just lacked a little bit of, you know, it was almost alternative facts. He might have done something, but it generally, it was almost as if he was positioning himself as someone who'd almost single-handedly, you know, found Harry Kane, you know, helped him when he was a kid, and then when he got to the head of the academy, he was the one that was picking these loan spells out. When he then became manager, he was the one that gave him his debut and got goals, and as a result, you know, Every success of Harry Kane is almost reflective of Tim Sherwood's greatness, and when he became manager, you know, he was very much an inveterate self-promoter, and he preached these sort of simple truisms. For example, in you know he got the job, I believe, off the off top of my head, I think it was late October, early November, and immediately, you know, Daniel Lee said, "Look." Do you want to make some signings in January, strengthen the squad in any way, shape, or form? And he was very much no. I've got this. We've got more than enough talent here. All you need is just a bit of vitamin Sherwood, and things will immediately get better. Hmm. And yet, and there was a fa- and there was an, a press conference where. And this was when Eric Lamella had first signed and he didn't speak English and he'd had injuries and really struggled to get into the first team. And someone asked him a question about Lamella and Tim Sherwood responded K, which is Spanish for what? Effectively, he was really just saying, I don't rate Lamella. I don't think he's much cop and I much prefer the youth team players that I was, you know, that he'd been bringing into the first team, which was, again, another way of sort of very much... Promoting himself. I was the head of the academy and I'm going to get all of this young talent where everybody else is spending huge amounts of money. I will be the one who will, you know, bring back youth talent. And it was very much playing to an amount. He was really playing to a section of the fan base that gets very frustrated at footballers very easily. You know, about the money, the glamour. And they've they've always got this sort of idealized time, sort of back in the day when players didn't earn as much, and they almost sort of lived on the you know two streets away, and you know, would take the bus to the ground with you. That kind of, and as a result, yeah, you know, anything like injuries. Oh, look at it! You have got all of this, you know, medical stuff. How can you possibly have a hamstring? Or you just run it off like they did back in the day. He was very good at feeding off of their anger, but in the end, he was just. Incredibly tactically naive. And it really fell apart. There was just some games, you know, I remember when we played Liverpool, and this was when they were you know, doing absolute gangbangers under um, Brendan Rogers And we turned up and we played four four two, and just, we were never going to compete. I knew from the second we saw them in the tunnel, they were going to get hammered the players looked like they knew that they just didn't have an answer to, you know, Suarez, to Daniel Sturridge of Informed, to you know, Raheem Sterling. They just didn't have and they got battered. You know, they as what they lost to was Sam Allardyce, West Ham team. And Sam Allardyce, you could just see, you had seen that starting line up and gone, Andy Carroll is going to have a field day. We're gonna pack the midfield, we're gonna all the gaps where, you know, that you could find in a 4-4-2 they found that day. And, you know, outside of an outstanding Hugo Lloris performance, in West Ham won 2-0, they could have won 6 on a different day. And so... I've, I would describe in some ways Tim Sherwood's manager of career at both Spurs and Aston Villa... As almost a sort of footballing Brexit, he was really pandering to that sensibility that we should almost in a way go back to the old school where basically managers would come up through the club's youth system. They manage the under eighteens, under twenty-one, the reserve team, and then become manager. And you know, you would you know you wouldn't buy many foreign players, you'd just use academy, and in some ways There is some merit to that. But in the end, there wasn't any sort of depth to it. I really just think in the end that all he is really... I think he would have made a really good academy manager had he just stuck with that. But it was never quite enough. So when things went wrong at Aston Villa and he got sacked, he then goes to... Swindon and the thing is Swindon it was his best one of his best friends was owned the club and so he'd given this kind of really vague kind of director of football but at the same time manager but not manager so really everyone when he first took up the job the idea was is that the manager was going to be doing the day-to-day he'd be running everything else and yet within sort of before even half time of that first game he was in the dugout giving instructions So it completely undermined the manager. And, you know, one of his first statements when he joined the club was, oh, the manager is there because I helped persuade the owner to hire him in the first place. And it was like, wow. I mean, not only is it really kind of an old boys decision that you've been put into this role, and, you know, realistically, how much did you know about League One when you'd been really running a Premier League academy and been managing the Premier League for a couple of years? And then sort of, once things started to go wrong, he stopped, you know, doing media, and suddenly the manager was now back, really, running the show, and within a few, sort of, months, you know, Swindon got relegated, and he left the club. And it was really, you know, once again, sort of, the, the problem that, you know, the pundit almost has, even when they have an element of experience, is that they're... They're very much high on soundbites, very much low on actual tactical plans and absolute um, philosophies. Now, if you compare, you know, Tim Sherwood, you know, when he got the job, it was originally to the end of the season. He very much lobbied. He wanted a, a long term, you know, a, an extended contract. He didn't want to be a lame duck. And I can understand that. But it was always, you felt like saying, well, just wait to the end of the season. If your performances and results are good enough, you will get another contract. But he was very, you know, until almost really sort of overstating his position until he was given an 18 month contract instead, which is really, you're just as much of a lame duck. And by the end of the season, Spurs fans were frankly sick of him. You know, they were barracking him and he'd really just become, you know, tactics tip. And then you compare with Pochettino, who had done his apprenticeship, you know, with Espanyol, had gone to Southampton, and with the same basic set of players, suddenly, you know, you know not the results were bad under Sherwood. he took a decent team, got them to six, got them to you know latter stages in Europe, latter stages in the cup, but whenever they came up against a quality opposition, they were just found out very quickly and yet Pochettino, with a similar sort of squad, managed to you know get them to fifth and a cup final, and you know, managed to use youth team players but had a philosophy in a style of football that was projectable. Things got better year after year after year, and then you culminated in all of his success, and now he's at PSG and Tim Scheld is now back being a you know football pundit. Mm. So what do I mean when I talk about the pundit manager quid pro quo? The manager needs the pundit manager needs a shortcut to cover up for his lack of grounding and experience. The owner or whoever makes the decision to hire you needs a PR boost, you know, and a narrative change that is instantly obvious to fans and the media. You know, it it basically speaks that there's some form of change is required and whether that's, you know, more media attention for the club, whether it's a catalyst for reforms you're trying to make with the club, you know, going a different direction or is it simply an emotional boost for the fans and the players? So it, wor- both, you know, it works both ways. you know. In other words, yeah, it really just works as a, as a quid pro quo. And I'm really going to go through some of where I think it's failed and some of those rare occasions when it's, to an extent, worked. If you look at Phil Neville, being made the you know being offered the job of manager of the England women's football team now well, the problem is is that Phil Neville hadn't applied for the job and had absolutely no experience you know, limited experience in coaching in the men's game and absolutely no experience in the women's game and he'd been a pundit now he'd been a popular pundit and you know he'd had a you know long career he'd had success at United he'd reinvented himself as a midfielder at everton and where he'd had, you know, some periods of his career, you know, when he made that mistake and knocked in, helped England get knocked out of Euro 2000, he'd really rebounded from that. And, you know, had, you know, particularly, you know, he was well-respected footballer. He was a good pundit. He was interesting, bright, articulate, intelligent. And the England the FA and England women's team were coming off of the Mark Sansom fair, where you know, he'd made, you know, a very, what was decided racial comment he'd also had some you know inappropriate contact with some of his players when he'd been a manager early in his career and so he'd been just basically it had been a whole affair it'd been a complete nightmare he'd been pushed out the job some of the players were against it it was really a complete mess and putting phil Neville in, despite his lack of experience it provided more courage for the fa and it really covered up the you know the mark Sanson you know, it basically put an end to it, and there was something else that people were talking about when it came down to the England women's team. In the end, he didn't take the team particularly far, he did okay in his World Cup, but it was more, you know, there was a question mark over his arrogance. There was really, he made a lot of sort of first manager job mistakes. You know, some of his public pronouncements were very defensive, and, you know, there wasn't, you know, once he had an idea he was gonna to stick to it, there was a sense that he was man management was quite good, but the tactics was a bit airy fairy. And so you look at sort of you know, I've discussed, you know, Tim Sherwood. it was cover for the collapse of the A V B project. A V B had got frustrated, hadn't got the players he wanted, quite went into a deep funk that the team started falling apart after Bell had left. And so really you know, Tim Sherwood because he'd been you know, at the club for a few years, a play for the club, he was really a facsimile of continuity. The idea of, okay, maybe he'll bring in some increased youth involvement, and he's a gap so that we can pause and reflect on what we want in our next manager. You know, and in a set almost in a way to sort of a desire for a toxic shock to the playing squad. Basically to try and give you know, to push them out of some complacency. They've been thrashed by Liverpool, they've been thrashed by Man City. And you know, they had been affected by you know AVB Downing tools. Did it work? Yes and no. Yes, they finished sixth, but some of their performances I discussed weren't great. You know, you had Alan Tim showed at Aston Villa, and that was really to assuage the anger and apathy at the decline of the club. You know, they'd been at you know, under the Martin O'Neill years in the mid aughts. They had been finishing 6th, 5th. They'd been competing for the Champions League. They'd been in Europe. They had some great players. And things start. you know, O'Neill left. And things started to go a bit south. You know, suddenly they found themselves, this great club were finding themselves, really battling relegation. You had the, you know, the years of Paul Lambert where he looked stressed. And they were struggling. And it was just basically, the club was, was in decline. And so he was really a boost in terms of his stature. He'd finished sixth with Spurs. And the idea that they were really getting in at the ground floor of a promising young British manager. And really whose skills in terms of youth development finding players would sort of cover their straightened economic standing. You know, promote youth players, sign interest, you know, from the academy, sign some interesting young players dotted around the Football League. And he would then, you know, push Villa on. And in the end, you know, he had some successes. He took them, you know, beat Brendan Rodgers Liverpool in the FA Cup semi-final. Kept them up. But there was, you know, again, there was problems with his tactics. You know, Falling out with players. And in the end, you know, SM, the decline was already set in. And he was sacked, you know, early in the next season when this form just fell apart. And you then you had Alan Shearer. And he was again. It's a similar pattern. You know, he was covered for a disastrous hiring of Joe Kinnear. Yeah, you know, the the Geordies and the Toon Army were getting angry. And, let's face it, pissed off with Mike Ashley. And it was a move of gesture politics. He was trying to create, you know, play on the Keegan era style energy. We'll get a Geordie Toon legend to come in and save us from you know, relegation. And, you know, he was manager for, I think, eight games, won one game. They got relegated on the last day of the season. And so you really have, you know, Frank Lampard, first at Derby and then at Chelsea. You know, at Derby, you have Mel Morris, who has put a lot of money into getting to club into the Premier League at that time. And it was a boost to the club's profile in terms of attracting players and loans. And it was also covering from a stretch-run collapse that they'd had under Steve McLaren. They'd sacked him, Gary Rower, and they'd just missed the playoffs when they'd spent most of the season in the playoffs the year before. They'd got to the playoff final and lost to you 10-man know, QPR. And that was a disastrous result. You now, I've discussed you know, Gary Neville. Valencia, they had angry fans, unpopular foreign owner, who was trying to make a splash. And really, again, with, with Frank Lampard when he was, you know, given the Chelsea job. It was cover for the ownership's administrative errors, which had led them to receiving a transfer ban. And they'd, you know, as a result, they'd sold Eden Hazard. Their best and most popular player had gone. They had a transfer ban. You had the optics of the Sari regime. Oh, yep, yeah, he won the Europa League. Yes, he got them to finish third. But people hated the, the style of football, the, ta- you know, the nailed on tactical substitution. If it was either Kavasovic coming on for Barkley, or it was Kavasovic, you know, starting, and then Ross Barkley coming on, and it the slow style of football, and it really, and the fact that he wasn't going to change, he was going to do it his way, and if he got sacked, fine, that's no water of his back, and he didn't seem to be particularly happy. And really Lampard was a bomb to unite the club. The fans were angry at Sari and you know, the, the funding that Abramovich put in wasn't as massive as it once was, you know, really when he first took over the club. And so, you know, Lampard was arguably in a good position to, you know, blood some younger players. You know, and he was really a Hail Mary, an interregnum. If it works, fantastic, he's a club legend, but it was a free hit for them. You know, they had problems and this year was was not going to be a year they were going to budget for finishing in the top four or to be competing in Europe or domestically. This was a year if they could, you know, get some young players in, if they could even finish in the top six, that would be fine. The fans would be relatively happy. The fact that they managed to finish in the Champions League, that was gravy. So what about the successes? Because at the moment, Frank Lampard is looking dangerously close to the precipice of being sacked. You know, this season hasn't gone particularly well. You know, they last few games, they've put in some poor performances. They're you know just in the top ten, and there are question marks whether he knows his best lineup. So where are the successes where you've had a pundit come in? Well, Trevor Brooking at West Ham, and while there's similarities to the other cases, there there are differences. I mean, he was basically covering for an unpopular owner in Terry Brown at West Ham you know, Trevor Booking is a West Ham legend played you know, 600 plus games for the club was on the board was an experienced administrator you know, sporting administrator worked for you know sport England and what happened was is that they got rid of Harry Redknapp, who had done a really great job at West Ham taking them to fifth. They were, they were always, you know, there was always when West Ham had a good team under Harry Redknapp, there'd be candidates for you know outer edges of finishing in Europe, but he'd fallen out with the chairman over money and just you know as Harry Redknapp tends to do, wound people up and he got the sack. But they'd made a terrible high in Glen Roder. The first season they'd done okay, but not quite as good as the season before. And set he, you know, let's face it, that West Ham team that went down with 42 points. Should have been nowhere, nowhere near the relegation zone. And they'd, you know, he'd had, the problem is Glenn Roder had done a poor job, but they hadn't sacked him, and he then had a brain tumour and collapsed. And so, literally, for the last sort of three, four games, they got in Trevor Brooking, you know, comes in, got some decent results, but there still wasn't quite enough. It, it, I think the argument I've always put is that had they hired him a month earlier, two months earlier, West Ham would have survived relegation pretty easily. You know, it was an element of political theatre. He was the he didn't want to be permanent manager. He was just doing it out of a sense of duty. You know, it's sort of like in when people talk about nineteenth century politics in America. You know, that you wouldn't put yourself forward for you know being president. People would you know ask you, and you'd say, "Well, if the people will must, I will serve." That kind of attitude. So why did the brooking hire hiring work where the share of one had failed? Yes, Trevor Brooking had a much more talented squad at West Ham, and as he'd been on the board for years, he had a better understanding of the sort of inner dynamics of the club, and you know his experience as an administrator. You know, he was basically someone who had a heft, you know, especially at the club, and as it was a short-term thing, people weren't. You know, when you've got four games left and you're fighting for your life, anyone with some degree of competence, people aren't going to be. If you kicked off at Trevor Brooking, if you're a West Ham player, having nearly taken them down, the fans weren't going to give you any change. Whereby, with Shearer, you had a situation he'd only been retired a short time. He had no relevant coaching or managerial experience. This was someone who, literally two weeks earlier, was on match of the day, who suddenly found himself in a suit with a struggling Newcastle United team. And Steven Gerrard. You know, he'd done a bit of youth coaching at Liverpool after he retired but you know, had no major frontline coaching experience and then took the Rangers job in Celtic and again it was a bit of a new board and it's seeking to make a statement higher to you know capture the fans and general public and make Rangers relevant again after years of Celtic domination because Rangers had basically self-immolated they got into huge amounts of debt and the club collapsed had to really start again in the bottom of the Scottish football pyramid and work their way back up. And in the intervening years, Celtic had a huge advantage financially and just had basically you know, swept the board in terms of trophies. And it was a way to sort of attract players. So if we're looking at the present moment, you could probably say that Steven Gerrard's it, Rangers are on the verge of winning the title and Frank Lampard is hanging his job is hanging by threads and there's a possibility if the, the results don't pick up that he'll be gone by the end of the month. To my mind Gerald took the Rangers job as preparation for ascending to the Liverpool job. He want that's his dream. He's got into football management because deep if his ideal dream would be to be the Liverpool manager. The year he took the job, so he took the job in summer 2018, that year Liverpool had finished fourth and lost the Champions League final. And if you look at the background to this, not you know, retrospectively we now know that Jurgen Klopp and that Liverpool team go on to greatness, win the Champions League, they won the league, and just two or three years of just dominance. But at that point, they'd finished fourth, they'd lost the League Cup final, they'd lost the Europa League final. You had Klopp's history, you know, finishing second, losing to Bayern Munich in the Champions League final. There was an element of nearly men hanging over that club. They hadn't won the league. You know, Man City were dominant. There was always Chelsea. there There was no guarantee that Liverpool were going to win the league at that exact moment. So really... And for Stephen Gerrard, because of as a player he'd never won the league. You know, they come so close, the slip, the infamous slip, you know, with Denver Barr and, you know, everything that emotion behind it mm. of falling short. So for him, managing in club like Rangers where it's a storied, trophy laden history. A demanding, passionate fan base who are longing and craving for glory after years in the wilderness. Deadly local rivals who are financially streets ahead and in a dominant position domestically. That's a lot similar to Liverpool's situation, you know, circa 2018. That's the similar situation that he'd, if, you know... Liverpool had maintained finishing in the top four, but not made that step up. Hadn't bought Allison, hadn't bought Virgil van Dijk. That's the similar sort of position that you would expect Liverpool to be in, where they'd have had to have sold a Sane or sold a Salah to Real Madrid, Barcelona like they'd had to with Suarez and Quintinho. So Gerald took the job knowing the perception and judgment on both sides of the border would be that he would have failed had he not won a title. And when you're dealing with Rangers and Celtic, Celtic in the 60s and 70s won nine league titles in a row. So that's pure dominance. And Rangers in the 90s won nine league titles in a row. No one in Scotland has ever managed to reach the magic 10. And this season, Celtic are going for number 10. And Rangers fans are desperate. Desperate. To stop it happening ten. Ten would be their worst nightmare times a million. And so many pundits at the time really argued that the job was a hiding to nothing under those circumstances. That even if he was to close the gap on Celtic from, you know, a chasm, which is what it was, to a title race that even if Celtic still won, he would still be classified as a relative failure. Which if you put it in a wider picture of him using the Rangers job as a springboard to a big six Premier League job, specifically Liverpool, that would be a major black mark on his name. If you can't succeed in the Scottish Premier League, where Rangers are one of the top two top big clubs and everybody else is just not in the same financial strata, how are you supposed to succeed in the big six where you're coming up against United, Liverpool, Liverpool? yeah so united man city chelsea arsenal spurs even everton clubs with big histories and big money you know if you can't succeed in you know that stratified ecosystem of you know of the SPL the Scottish Premier League and you also have to factor in you know celtic's recent failure in the champions league group stages failing to qualify for the champions league outright and even in the Europa League this season specifically, where their performance has been awful. And that you know, speaks down to the pedigree of the league and the players, when you're then, again, making a, always, you're always making a direct comparison to the, the EPL. But that was really precisely the point of why he took the job. I mean, if you consider that there is a small yet persistent and massively highly vocal section of Spurs fans who argue that Pochettino's reign at Spurs ended in failure, that he is a failure. It blows my mind. Yes, he didn't win the Champions League. No, he didn't win the league title. But if you compare the rabble that we were under Tim Sherwood to the team that was, you know, got 186 points and really for the first time in a generation had a specific, you know, a five-year run of, you know, success. Each year on year and year, there would be, you know, some form of improvement. Yep, the last season was a bit ugly, and he did run out of steam, and the players ran out of steam, and it wasn't perfect, but really, he would taken Spurs to sites had not been seen in a generation or even generations, just because there was no trophies. And the thing is, when you talk about finals, semi-finals. The difference between winning and losing can be, you know, vanishingly small. Overall, had you on day one when Moteo Pochettino had taken Southampton to up, you know, to the top, the edge of the top six, had said on his press conference within five years, I'm going to have taken this team to two different attempts at winning the Premier League, finishing second and the Champions League final, he'd have been laughed out of that room. No one expected that. I wouldn't have it, but I would have to maybe qualifying for the Champions League, but not the situation where you're champ qualifying for the Champions League year after year after year, and also getting to semi finals and cup finals, get you know, eighty six points, you know, going a whole season at home unbeaten with only two draws, you know, those kind of you know, you know having the best defense, you know, scoring goal, you know, huge amounts of goals, playing fantastic football, you know, be, you know, going to the Juventus stadium and giving a great Juventus side a game. All of those bits and pieces, and yet still there are some people that consider that a failure. When all of his predecessors of, of the previous fifteen ten years, for them finishing in the top four or top five was a great result. You know, getting to the out of the group stage of the Champions League was the absolute height, and then being battered by Real Madrid for when you talk about Harry Redknapp. You know that's how sort of demanding fans are, specifically in the Premier League, and you know how if there is you know and this is I think. Generally an English thing, or British thing, is the obsession with that you have to win a trophy and that is the sign of any managerial success, that there's no... it's black or white. If you don't have a trophy, you haven't won anything, whereby if you have one League Cup, then that somehow qualifies that if you finish fifth. It's that kind of logic that I sometimes struggle with. So for Steven Gerrard to become Liverpool manager, he he needs to have a CV... With major trophies. Not cups. You're talking league titles. Where you've gone wire to wire. You've been the best team. You've had you know, a title race. And you've come on top. You need experience of Europe. And ideally relatively success on the continent. Which he's had with Rangers. He's got them at the Europa League group stages a couple of times. And their performance in Europe has been very impressive. Compared to the teams they've been playing. And the style of football that they've been able to put together. Mm. You know, you have to be able to deal with the vast, you know, the harsh glare of the media and it's a goldfish bowl, you know, and a demanding large-scale fan base. And I suppose perhaps from in my opinion, the most surprising element has been his ability to build year on year despite a large amount of new signings and player turnover. And it's a real testament to his learning curve is really building on the skill set that he had learnt coaching the Liverpool youth team prior to taking the Rangers job the thing is is that he didn't have 5 years to do to get rangers back to where they needed to go it really was two or three years if you're not competing you will be sacked so he didn't have the ability to sit there and say this team in two three years doesn't you know each off season he had to make changes he had to really build up some form of expectation that each year that at the end of the season they would be competing that they would be not just competing but be you know winning things so each year they had to be change over turnover there wasn't a situation where you'd have the same squad and you know you build it year on year and then by the fourth year or fifth year you'd be peaking and that's when you'd go for the league title you know, he didn't have that sort of time at Rangers, and he wouldn't really have that time at a top six Premier League club. Mm. You know, I mean, he could have stayed at Liverpool. He could have adopted the position of the heir apparent. He could have worked in the youth system, gone, you know, maybe been first team coach, then assistant coach, and then you know, depending on you know whether you know Jurgen Klopp had decided to go to Bayern Munich or to maybe Real Madrid or the German national team. Or if there'd been you know, a downturn in form, he could have then said, well, he would have been perfect for the, you know, the role. But I suppose the idea is a caretaker role and a lack of experience that he would have had would have left him vulnerable to circumstances and events. So in other words, if he was taking you know, a Liverpool team that was in crisis where there was an in you know i mean this is the thing if you have three injuries and one's a defender one's a midfielder one's a striker that's not the end of the world if you have three strikers out injured at the same time that's a catastrophe and there's very little that you can do about it if it's not you know in the middle of the january transfer window and that's the problem there's a prevailing narrative that he was unprepared for the big job that he'd just been waiting there and you know Whereby, if he was to now take the job in a few years when Jurgen moves on, he'd be doing that from a relative position of strength. He wouldn't just be okay. You're a club legend, and you know you were just the next you know cab off the rank. So let's really sort of compare the Gerrard administration with the Lampard administration. Or the Lampard managerial career in total, and I suppose at the end of last season, Rangers were still struggling. They'd had a decent year in Europe, but you know they're not going to win the Europa League. Realistically, you're looking at you know maybe last sixteen, last eight, but you're eventually going to hit a great team. You know, for example, last season they played Bayer Leverkusen, and they're just not going to be able to compete with a team that's in the top four in the Bundesliga. You know, realistically. So, at the end of last season, you know, Celtic had won the league very comfortably. And you know, Rangers still looked to be a fair way behind Celtic. Whereby, with Chelsea, they'd finished third in Lampard's first debut season. They'd reached latter stage in Europe. They'd lost to the eventual Champions League winners Bayern Munich. They'd got to the cup final. Yes, uh, they'd lost to Arsenal, which was disappointing, but... Overall there was a sense of satisfaction amongst Chelsea fans. They'd, you know, had more success than they'd probably guessed on the first game of the season when they'd been battered 4-0 by United at Old Trafford. And in some ways this really displays the inherent savvy of Lampard. You know, rather than take a hand grenade of a job in Rangers, you know, the thing is a hand grenade is eminently powerful, you know, if you throw it, you know, at your enemy. However, a hand grenade is incredibly dangerous if it's likely to explode in your hand, before you're able to throw it at someone. With the Derby squad, Frank had an experienced championship squad that in recent years had lost in the player finals, and it was playing an attractive brand of football. You know, any Steve McLaren team is going to play decent Level of football is not going to be you know hump and hope. Mm. It's not going to be route one long ball football. You know you had an ambitious owner who was spending heavily, desperate to have Premier League football. You had a good stadium, quality training ground, and you had you know, as a big name, you know someone who they'd seen on TV every single you know Sunday, you know at halftime super you know for Super Sunday who they'd seen, you know, playing for England a hundred times, you know, scoring a hundred goals for Chelsea. And the thing is that not only did he bring that big name and that star potential to the championship, it also had the acumen, the political capital, and that he was able to basically go to Chelsea and get Mason Mount and um, Ficayo Tomori on season-long loan deals. And it, there was a perfect sort of narrative and it was, a, broadly speaking, a successful season. But you know, they finished in, you know, I believe it was fourth in the championship, beat Leeds in the playoffs, and then lost in the final to Aston Villa. So if you're looking at it, you, you know that's a Villa team that next season just about survived relegation, and a Leeds team the next year that went up as champions... You know, Marcelo Biazla who's obviously a you know, coaching legend Dean Smith who's done a fantastic job you know, that was a high quality you know Division one playoffs you know all three are now you know Premier League managers a lot of the players in that are still in the Premier League you know Grealish, you know, Calvin Phillips you know Mount and Tamori but really if you look at it retrospectively you had a decent championship side. And you had two quality Premier League players. You know, really they were a cut above the championship. And had they been loaned to a Premier League team, they would have more than held their own. Both are full internationals. You know, Tamori has just joined the A C Milan who are, you know, leading in Serie A and it's a twenty five million pound you know, buy out if if the move the loan move works out. You know, Mason Mount is I would imagine if you were to sell him you'd be looking at 50, 60 million pounds, someone who's really pushing to start in you know England's midfield in the Euros. You know, it's not a surprise they you know finish suddenly in the playoff spots. And I see very much in Lampard's first season at Chelsea. It brings to mind Shane Warne's judgment of the England cricketer Monty Panasau's test career. Uh, Monty Panasau was a spin bowler, played about 40-plus test matches. And, you know, he generally speaking was a pretty good player. He had some highs, he had some lows. And what he said was is that it wasn't that he played 40 tests, but he played the same Test 40 times. There was no development. If it was a spinning wicket, he'd do quite well. If it wasn't, then he wouldn't be particularly effective. You know, the thing is, you had the transfer ban, you've had the sale of Hazard, but there was a wellspring of positivity because, you know, he was a Chelsea legend and they were happy to have him. He understood Chelsea fans and Chelsea fans understood him, which was in a marked contrast to Mauricio Sar and even to Antonio Conte to a certain extent. You know, Chelsea had had you know lots of foreign managers, and for the first time in a long period of time, they had an English manager, and generally, there was just you know there was just a bit of tradition, and there was just they were generally happy to have him there, and he also brought with him the promise of you know Mount and Tamori because he'd managed them. He you know it just seemed like you know a, a sort of a serendipity. That you, you suddenly you've got all this talent at Cobham who've been developing for years, and finally you had an English manager who used two of those players and had some success, and he was therefore going to usher in a kind of a new era. So yes, while the transfer ban was you know, annoying, it was you know a you know a, an opportunity to reform. Now, this was remember this was a team although you'd lost Hazard. They'd finished third. They'd won the Europa League. You know, it's n- can't really be a surprise that Chelsea performed well because you had lowered expectations. You generally had a, a, a happy football club. You were able to give these young players a talent, you know, Rhys James. You know, Tariq Lamptey, although he eventually went to um, Brighton. You know, and the thing is, you were... Putting these young players, you know, your Abraham's, your Tamoris, your mounts, into a relatively successful team—that's the ideal situation when you're blooding in young players—is to give them prominence, but within a team that's successful. If you put in a young player to a team that's struggling, you know, that can be very, you know, damaging to their, you know, development. I mean, and you you have to again look at the the backdrop. You know, there was managerial sackings with both North London teams. You know, Unai Emery. You know, considering that you'd got to a Europa League final where had Arsenal won, they'd won something in Europe, they'd been in the Champions League, they got battered in the final, got rid of Emery. You know, you'd had Tottenham in the Champions League final within a few weeks, you know, months. Pochettino was out, you then had the you know, sea change with you know, Mourinho, you had periods of time with on on Solskjaer at Man where they were struggling, and it was only really after the restart that they went on a great run of form, which was a little bit too late to be you know, competing with Chelsea. You know, you had you know, the post-lockdown fade of Brendan Rodgers at Chelsea, again, which really in a way sort of aided and abetted Lampard's Chelsea. But it's still, even with all of that being factored in, it was still a highly impressive achievement for a second-year manager at a top-six club. But for me, the issues was is that the constraints faced by Lampard act as a, a narrative structure that influenced every decision. In other words it gave him a, a plan, a preset plan. In other words I won't be able to buy a top level striker It's long term if I want to be here for an extended period of time, which is what he wants. Giving Tammy Abraham the majority of starts makes sense. Because you know, Olivier Giroud can do a job, but you know what Olivier Jurid can do and what he can't do, and that there's virtually non-existent that he's going to be there in two or three seasons. He is a fantastic bench warmer, a fantastic player to have, a break glass, a break glass in case of emergency player. But Tammy Abraham, if he hits his full potential, could be a 20-25 goal a season striker. Which if you're trying to buy one, it's going to cost you 18 £90, 100000000 million. Pounds. If you have one for free, all of the options are available to you. And the thing is, even when he reintegrated Giroud last season, even to an extent this season, it was a good managerial move. but it was telegraphed. Because, yeah, eventually at some point, Tammy would pick up some injuries and would need a rest. And and Giroud, with experience of it having done that, in the start of his Chelsea career and at the last stage of Arsenal, is an ideal experienced player who can come in and do you a job for a couple of months if he hits, you know, red hot form, which he did, you know, really just before Christmas again. And he's happy then, not necessarily happy, but can then just be sort of pushed to the back of the bench and, you know, forgotten about for a month. So really, I suppose with the sort of conclusion to this, I'm going to sort of start asking the question of, you know, what ex- to what extent is Lampard responsible for Chelsea's recent struggles? I would compare, I can look at, when I look at Steven Gerrard, I see someone who took complete control of their managerial career and their narrative. He took a risk, but it was a risk that has, at the present moment, paid off. You know, looks very much as if Rangers are going to win the title, having stopped you know Celtic winning ten in a row, and the culmination of this long journey where from Rangers you know becoming a phoenix club, with all the debt, having to work their way up from you know Division Three up to the Scottish Premier League, and to really haul in. Celtic with all of the advantages they had to have from Champions League money, European money, when Rangers were just really trying to just rebuild the football club. And because it's framed with his desire to become Liverpool manager. Whereby, when I see Frank Lampard, I can't really see how managing Derby could be seen as a concerted attempt by Lampard to work towards the dugout at Stamford Bridge. That's what I can't see. It's, I'm going to manage Derby, then I'm going to do this, this and this, and then one day... Roman will give me the call and I will then you know, be paraded around Stamford Bridge with the shirt and the scarf. And I will now be manager of you know, Chelsea and we will have great success. To me, it just seems like it was really more of a case of a relatively advantageous role for a rookie manager. In other words, I've been in the... I've been a pundit, I've been in the studio... I now want to kind of kick on with my managerial career. I don't have any knowledge of the lower leagues. I don't really want to start at the bottom because that's not really a practical way. You can't just say, well, I'm going to do maybe a couple of years in division in League One, then maybe a championship job, then the Premier League. It really is your first move. It's Your first move is your biggest and most important move. And Derby, if I can then get them into the Premier League, I am that much closer. And it's a very quick turnaround. And it's it's where I can hit the ground running rather than a, a rebuild where you might have a couple of years where you finish 15th. And because the championship is so competitive and because there's so much desire to get to the Premier League, you don't have two or three years to bed in. It is win or die, win or get sacked. You know, the point is is that the transfer ban, or nor the ranking ability of Maurizio Sari to assimilate or adapt to the Premier League, were, weren't intended or foreseen by the Chelsea board. You know, really, Frank was just, you know, kind of fell into their laps, really. You know, it was a situation where a lot of, High-profile managers wouldn't have taken on the, the the Chelsea job with the the handcuffing of a of a transfer ban because you don't know whether Roman will keep you for that season, and that's a huge risk. Whereby with Frank, it again like I said, it was a free hit, and for me, his managerial cards up until the start of this season had broadly dictated his strategies. You know, he had an experienced good side at Derby. He added a bit of extra quality. That quality took them from outside of the playoffs. Into the playoffs, he had a load of young, talented players at Chelsea, and a transfer ban. Yeah, that pretty much you know wrote itself. So really, the decision of Abram, so the key turning point in the you know the intervening act in this sort of Lampard's you know chain of causation as a manager is the decision to use the COVID you know, football. Economic crisis—an opportunity to zig while the rest of the elite zagged. While Barca didn't spend any money, Real didn't spend any money. You know, lots of clubs were big clubs were reluctant to put a huge amounts of coin down. They decided, well, this is just about the time where that two hundred million pounds will go that much further, and we can, you know, make out like bandits. But really, that's a top-down situation where really they are saying to Lampard. We are now setting the narrative for you. You now have no excuses. You have £200 million worth of talent. You have a brand new goalkeeper, brand new striker, brand new attacking midfielders. You still have the youth talent. You still have the bases of a squad that finished third two years in a row. Win now. It's not a five-year plan where we think that if you develop Tamori, if you get Billy Gilmore into the squad, if, you know... Tammy Abraham hits hits his straps. We think, you know, and we leave you in charge and let you, you know, learn and build this club. Almost a little bit like you know, sort of Fergie's team when he dismantled the first championship-winning team and then brought in the class of ninety-two. That wasn't going to be the case at Stamford Bridge. You know, Roman Bridge doesn't have the patience to wait for that. It is. I am going to make this executive decision. Here's your talent. Make the most of it. And it's really almost, in a way, sort of a poison chalice. Because you don't turn down Kai Havertz, You don't turn down Timo Werner. So Chelsea are now expected to meaningfully compete at home and abroad. So any falling short of that, he's going to be liable to be dispensed with and sacked. Whereby, everything, every stage in his managerial career up to this point, he's had a limited range of options you know he didn't have the biggest squad in the world at Derby he didn't have the situation where he could tear it down and then bring in his own players it was really bolting on the talent that he brought in and really you know making you know making them a bit more proactive but generally keeping on with what they were doing but with more quality that's what then led them to the playoffs now he has a pack squad, he has a multiple tactical options, and he has to develop this. You know, he needs to get you know, goals out of Werner, he needs Kai Havertz. When you spend spent that kind of money, you can't have them on the bench unless Tammy Abrahams is scoring you know, Harry Kane-esque amounts of goals. If you know, Callum Hudson-Doy is putting up a Sonny season, then you have a situation where you can put them on the bench. But even then, that is a huge amount of money to have put on the bench. And I, you know, again, it. I think watching Chelsea this season, it looks like he's not sure of what Plan A is, which means he can't really go to Plan B. So yeah, for the first, you know, first third of the season, Giroud was an afterthought because you know he had, a, you know, Abraham, he had Werner. Giroud was the past. We'll probably get rid of him in January. But then suddenly, you know, Tammy didn't have a great run of form, neither did, Werner started missing chances. And so it's like, oh, well, i will better bring you back in. He score scores a few goals. And it's like, well, what do I do? Do I just keep putting Giroud out there, even though he's not a long-term option? But we're winning. And and so suddenly you have a situation where you're playing, you know, at times, Abraham up front and Werner on the wing. But then at times he played him on the left wing, he's played him on the right wing. And really the style of football that Chelsea are playing, which is... You know, quite patient build up. You know, not a huge, not as much pressing as you know he had at RB Leipzig, where he was literally, you know, there was lots of turnovers in the attacking third, balls to run onto, which is really his sort of meat and drink. Which basically he uses his pace, gets past the last defender, smashes it in. He's not the most gifted finisher. So the more of those opportunities whereby if you're asking him to, you know lots of patient build up and then try trying to get a snapshot in it's not quite as successful so really to me it's looking like he's increasingly likely that his first two seasons have not prepared him for the extended run of poor form and results he doesn't he's never really had a a period of major failure either at derby or his first season at chelsea You know, in terms of liability, you don't know how much say so he had on the choices and the amount of money that was spent. You really, again, as a manager, can you turn down your owner giving you two hundred million pounds and giving you one of the best attacking midfielders, young attacking midfielders in Europe, one of the the most highly rated strikers in Europe? You're not in that position in the same way that you know, Mour- you know, Mourinho wasn't in the position really to turn down him signing you know Andrei Shevchenko. And yet, there is you know some mitigation in the sense that you know he had a you know, very short preseason. You know there was you know, elements of tiredness, but then that's really the same for a lot of clubs. You know I. I really feel that. There's a lack of, underlying football and tactical philosophy with Frank Lampard, which is why I would call him a pundit manager. He has all of the same problems that the other pundit managers have had in the you know, the failures of Gary Neville, the failures of Phil Neville that he's now moved on to into Miami, whereby if you look at Gerard, he's I feel done it the right way. I feel he's learning the skills that in the long term will get him an idea of the football he wants to play and the success he wants to have and where he wants to have it, whereby... And it, to be fair, there is an extent that, you know, what can Frank Lampard do in that situation? You're a Chelsea legend, you get offered the Chelsea job, you never know when you... You might never get offered it again. So, yeah, you know, I'm not 100% blaming Frank Lampard for it. And the problem is, is that, you know, is he an idealist? Or is he a pragmatist? Is he a motivator? Is he an innovator? Does he believe in pressing? Is he a coach that prefers younger stars to experienced pros? You know, does he want to focus more on the league? You know, is his are his teams going to be more cup teams? You know, is he going to be, you know, powerful at home, but maybe more courses away from home? And to me, his managerial career almost appears to be that of a sailboat sailboat. and it's you know tacking here and there depending on where the waves go and for the most part his first two years he had fair winds and good waves and was making lots of progress but now he's finally reached stormy waters there doesn't seem to be much of a plan and it's very much a rookie captain at the wheel thank you for listening